If you would tonight, turn to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. And in our exposition, walking through the book of Exodus, we have now come to a portion of Exodus that is known as the book of the covenant. In fact, it's referred to it as the book of the covenant in Exodus 24 verse 7, when it says that Moses took the book of the covenant and he read it before all the people. And so this section of Exodus from chapter that really the end of chapter 20 that we looked at last time and then on through chapter 23 is a collection of laws that is known as the book of the covenant. And this book of the covenant is composed of two kinds of laws. And those two kinds of laws are these. One is case laws, or a more formal term would be casuistic law. And basically, case law is conditional. It's conditional based on certain circumstances and situations. And so the case laws would start something like this. If a person does this, et cetera, et cetera, then here is how this is to be handled. Or when a person does such and such, then this is how it is to be handled. And so those are case laws. They deal with specific scenarios or situations. But then you have more just general universal laws, more formally called apodictic laws. And, and these formal laws or universal laws are stated in more broad terms, not just in certain cases or specific scenarios, but generally they are, they are broad sweeping regulations. And so, for example, the Ten Commandments would fit into that kind of law. It's, a, it's either a broad command or a broad prohibition that just applies across the board universally. So those two kinds of laws are primarily the two types that are found in Exodus 21 all the way through chapter 23. And these laws were given to govern Israelite faith, their worship, and their society, the way that they relate to one another. And what we've come to here in chapter 21 is uh, a, a section of laws that when we first look at them, we might think, what in the world does this have to do with me? Because Exodus 21 verses 1 through 11 are laws, and these are case laws, and you can see that by the form of if you or if someone does such and such, then this. And so these are the, the case type laws that I was talking about a moment ago. And these laws primarily have to do with slavery in ancient Israel. And you might think, what in the world does uh, this passage, these laws about slavery in ancient Israel have to do with me in the year 2018 in America? We haven't seen slavery in America for over 150 years. Most of the world, most of the civilized world doesn't use slavery anymore. So what, what's the point of this? What's even the point of studying this? Well, a couple of points. One is, this is God's word, isn't it? All of scripture is God-breathed. And so 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture, all of it is God-breathed. It all comes from God. 
it's all truth, it all therefore has his authority, but also 2 Timothy 3.16 teaches us that all scripture is profitable. It's profitable for learning, for our learning and doctrine, for rebuking us, for correcting us, for training us in the way of righteousness. And so obviously we're very, very far removed from the social and cultural context of these laws. But that doesn't mean that there aren't things here that we can learn and that we can apply to our lives. Because I think as we walk through this passage, what I hope will come across is not that the Bible upholds or lifts up slavery as a glorious institution, but that in the midst of slavery, God advocates for their care and for their dignity. And so the Bible is, is speaking grace, is speaking mercy, it's speaking compassion into slavery. And it reveals the heart of God for all people, even the very lowest of society. And so I hope that feeling, that thought comes through as we walk through this passage tonight. And another reason why it's important to go through passages like this is not only because it is God's word, and there are certainly things that we can learn from it, but there's also a, a, an apologetic reason to go through passages like this. Because a passage like this is exactly the kind of passage that an unbeliever would use and say, there's no way I could follow a God like that. Look, look what your Bible teaches about slavery. Your Bible upholds slavery. It, it lifts up slavery and, and it teaches the, the mistreatment of slaves. And so you'll hear all kinds of things like this from unbelievers and from people who, who claim to know what the Bible teaches but here's the thing is when you understand passages like this in their context, not only the context of Exodus in terms of its literary context, but when you also understand it in terms of its broad historical and social context, then it really speaks to how great and merciful and compassionate the God of the Bible is. And so People like to use this to beat over the heads of Christians and say, look at, look at your God and how, how cruel he is and he advocates slavery. But really, when you understand it within its proper context, it actually speaks to the love and compassion of God and his care for even the most destitute in society. And so I hope that we can see that as we walk through this passage. And I think a few things, a few kind of background items or, or, or things to think about to help frame our vision as we walk through this passage are, are these. First of all, slavery was generally assumed to be normal and a necessary practice in much of the history of humanity. You ever thought about that? I mean, really in the grand scheme of human history, slavery or, or the, the abolishment of slavery is a fairly recent phenomenon. Last 150 years. Now, by the way, in, in nothing that I'm saying tonight am I saying, hey, let's bring back slavery. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is we have to understand that for 99% of the history of the world, slavery was the norm, right? 
It was the norm. It's, it's how many, many civilizations practiced. And especially in the ancient Near East. So you start looking at Israel in the ancient world and you've got around them the Canaanites and, and the Babylonians and the Syrians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians and, and all these ancient Near Eastern peoples, they all practice slavery. All of them. In Greek culture, they practice slavery. In Roman culture, they had slavery. In, in, many, in some places in the world today, they still have slavery. So it, this has been the norm throughout human history. And so what this passage is doing is it is speaking into that situation. It is speaking truth and compassion and dignity into that situation that was pervasive across the whole world. So think about that as a framework. Another thing to think about is that we need to assess and look at these biblical laws in comparison with other laws that we know of from the ancient Near Eastern world. And when we do that, when we, when we compare, for example, Hebrew regulations regarding slavery with Egyptian or Babylonian regulations regarding slavery, then you come away with an appreciation for the compassion of God. And that when, when the Bible speaks into this issue of slavery, it is, it is taking it a step above. It's taking it a step above, a step more compassionate, a step towards more human dignity than everyone else around it in the ancient world. And so the Bible, biblical law, is vastly improving the situation of slaves in the ancient world. And another thing to think about, especially in terms of Exodus and the flow of the events and the flow of thought in Exodus, is why is it that the book of the covenant essentially begins with rules about slavery? Out of all the laws that you could possibly talk about in the way that we treat one another, why start with slavery? Well, where have we come from in Exodus? The Israelites have come from slavery, haven't they? The, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And in Egypt, they did not experience slavery like this that we're about to read in Exodus 21. They didn't experience compassionate slavery. They didn't experience slavery with a view toward eventual freedom. For generation after generation after generation of, of that era of Israelites, their life was spent in harsh, cruel slavery under the oppressive thumb of Egypt. And then God set them free. And God says to them, here's how I want you to treat slaves. Because you were slaves in Egypt. And so this is taking slavery and lifting it up and exalting it over and above what they themselves had experienced in Egypt and over and above what most of the ancient world experienced at that time. One commentator says this, Just as you went out free for nothing from the house of bondage, so should every Hebrew slave go out free for nothing from your homes after he has served you a number of years. So the freedom 
that this passage offers to slavery is patterned after the freedom that God delivered to his people who were in slavery. And another thing to think about, too, is that this section of Exodus, and not just the, this one that we're looking at tonight, but, but many of these laws in the Book of the Covenant, they have to do with social justice. That is, making sure that, that people are treated fairly, that people are treated rightly, justly in society, that the weak are not oppressed. And so the pronouncements that are made by God here are about ensuring social justice. As judge of all the earth, the Lord determines what kind of behavior ought to be followed. And in this section of Exodus, it reflects the pattern of behavior that he expects from his people, Israel. So this is, this is kind of set within that framework. And I think that'll help us as we look at this passage. So let's read it together. Exodus 21 Verse 1, these are the laws that you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. Now, one of the things that we see in the beginning of this passage is that we are dealing with a specific situation. And that's what case laws were intended uh, for, specific situations. And so you can see at the beginning of verse 2, that is, a Hebrew buys a Hebrew servant. So that specific scenario. We're not talking about a Hebrew buying a foreign servant. We're not talking about a foreigner buying a Hebrew as a servant. We're only talking about this one specific situation of a Hebrew having another Hebrew as his servant, as his slave. So that is the specific situation. And in all of these case laws, what we see sometimes is there is a primary ruling. And then underneath that, there are secondary rulings that are kind of like conditions or clauses that apply to the primary ruling. And so we see that here. So the primary ruling in verse two is if you have a Hebrew servant, you bought a Hebrew servant and he serves you for six years, then in the seventh year, he must go free. 
That's the primary ruling. And then the other if statements underneath that in verses 2 through 6, those are the secondary rulings that specifically apply or relate to that situation of a Hebrew slave who goes free in the seventh year. So a primary ruling and secondary rulings. We'll see the same thing in verses 7 through 11 in the case of a female servant. There is a primary ruling regarding the female servant, and then in verses 8 through 11, there are secondary rulings that specifically apply to that original primary ruling. Now, what are some principles that we can glean from this passage? I want to I approach it this way. I want to approach it from the standpoint of human dignity. And I've titled this message, Dignity for the Destitute. Because essentially what this passage is talking about, and it's not spelled out in so many, in so many words in this particular passage, but it's basically assumed and other parallel passages in Deuteronomy and Leviticus assume it, there is pretty much one scenario under which a Hebrew would sell himself as a slave to another Hebrew. And that was poverty. Pretty much that was the only scenario in the scriptures under which a Hebrew would become a slave to another Hebrew. Due to poverty, extreme poverty, destitution, or perhaps an indebtedness that could not be repaid. And so through either poverty or through an inability to repay a debt, someone could become the slave, a Hebrew man could become the slave of another Hebrew man. And so it was always within that scenario of destitution. And what this passage is speaking to is it's speaking into that case, it's speaking into that situation, and it is revealing to us that the Lord is, is teaching his people that even servants, even slaves have dignity, have human dignity, have honor and respect, even though they're completely destitute and they have sold themselves as a slave just to provide for themselves or for their family. And so the first dignity that I see in this passage is the dignity of financial responsibility. The dignity of financial responsibility, or you might say the dignity of the repayment of a debt. In ancient Israel, there was no welfare system. In ancient Israel, there was no such thing as social security. In ancient Israel, there was no Medicare. In ancient Israel, there was no Medicaid. In ancient Israel, there were, there were no food stamps. In ancient Israel, you were either provided for by family, you worked yourself, or if you were completely impoverished, or you had a debt that you could not repay, then you sold yourself as a slave. Or perhaps a family member, a son or a daughter, as a slave in order to repay your debt. There was no bankruptcy in ancient Hebrew society. So if you had a debt that you couldn't repay, you couldn't go to the lawyer down the street and file chapter 11 bankruptcy. You were indebted and you had an obligation to repay that indebtedness. And so instead of languishing in eternal debt 
or languishing in extreme poverty and destitution and perhaps even famine and hunger and death, the Lord says, here's a way for people to be provided for. And the way that people can be provided for is through hard work, right? Through hard work. Maybe the person, he, he no longer has control of his own land because of his poverty or because of a debt that he owes. And so he has no other recourse except to go and work for someone else and to sell himself into slavery for someone else. And he does this to take upon himself the financial responsibility for himself or for his family and to assume that responsibility and to earn his food and shelter and clothing through work or to repay a debt through a period of work. There's dignity in that. There's dignity in not shirking responsibility. There's dignity in not just waiting around for handouts. There's dignity in committing yourself to a situation for a period of time, knowing that you need to work hard to resolve this situation. There's dignity in that. So there's the dignity of financial responsibility. In ancient Israel, thieves were required to pay back with extra what they stole. So there was no such thing as incarceration in ancient Israel. They didn't have all kinds of prisons where people were just locked up indefinitely. In ancient Israel, you received a penalty for sins, for crimes. If it was a capital crime, then you were put to death. For other lesser crimes, it was generally financial restitution. In the case of thievery, it was repayment of what was stolen plus extra, sometimes double, sometimes fourfold. Well, what if the thief could not repay that? Well, he became a slave. And through work and through effort, he repaid his debt that he owed. And so there is the dignity of financial responsibility. But then this passage also reveals to us the dignity of freedom. The dignity of freedom. And here's the thing that we have to understand about, about slavery as it was practiced in ancient Israel. is It was indentured servitude. It was not the slavery of the buying and selling of human souls indefinitely, forever, as a possession. Especially in an ethnic or race way that we see in American history. In ancient Israel, it was to pay off an indebtedness or to work out of poverty, and it was always for a set time. There was always freedom at the end of the tunnel. Always. The longest that a Hebrew could ever serve as a slave to another Hebrew was six years. That was the longest. No matter how big the debt, the debt was paid off after six years. You served as a slave, but in the seventh year, you had the promise of freedom. And so it was never intended to be a lifelong affair. It was kind of more like you were leasing the services of this person for a set number of years, after which his commitment to you is over and your claim on him or your obligation to him is released. There is no more. He is set free and you are free from providing anything more for him and he is free from working any more for you. There is freedom. And the principle that the Lord establishes here is the principle of every seven years. 
Just like the Lord provides rest every seven days for his people, he provides rest and release for his servants every seven years. And so there was built into the Hebrew system a path to freedom. There's dignity in that. There's dignity in working and serving another for a goal, for the goal of repayment of a debt or coming out of poverty or whatever the reason, but then always with the goal of freedom at the end. There's dignity in that. And so Leviticus 25, for example, is a parallel passage to this one. Hebrews were to treat their slaves more like hired workers with compassion. Why? Because they were supposed to remember their time in Egypt when they were cruelly and oppressively treated. Also, Leviticus 25 indicates that ultimately Israelites belong to God, not to one another. They were ultimately servants of their God, not enslaved forever and ever to one another. And so there was freedom. They were to be set free at the set time. And so this portion is a humanitarian section. It's dealing with human dignity and social justice. And a reason that's further proven in Scripture is that when you come to the later prophets, such as Jeremiah or Isaiah, and they are rebuking Israel for their social injustice, you know what one of their crimes was? Not releasing slaves in the seventh year. So they were breaking covenant by cruelly treating their slaves by not releasing them in the seventh year as this law, this ruling told them to do. So there's the dignity of financial responsibility. There's the dignity of freedom. We also see in this passage the dignity of family and how important family life was to the structure of ancient Israel and really to all of human society. And so here we come into the the secondary rulings. The secondary rulings. If a man came by himself, and at the end of six years he was still single by himself, then he went free. Another situation is if a man came by himself, or if a man came with a wife, and they both came together, and they were married, then at the end of six years they both went free. But another situation is in verse number four, but... If someone comes alone, single, and while he is there during those six years, his master provides for him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, then the woman and her children shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. You might think, wow, that, that, seems, that seems pretty harsh. But I think what, what's important for us to remember is that what is happening here is there is an obligation on both parties. If a master is providing a wife and then family and children to the slave, that is giving to the slave something, right? So the slave is already indebted to the master for a set period of time. And after that, he shall go free. But what if during that period of time, the master provides extra? on top of that, through the giving of a wife, through family. And so one commentator says this, let's think about it this way. He says, we need to ask what might have prohibited the slave's wife and children from being released. Why couldn't his wife and children go with him at the end of six years? 
He says, it's very possible that this ruling was intended to prevent a breach of faith on the part of the slave. In all likelihood, the slave's marriage was funded by his master, probably on the understanding that in return, the slave would continue to serve beyond the required period of six years. Given the cost of marriage, a substantial betrothal present had to be paid to the bride's father, something that no debt slave could do. He could not, so he had to enter into into such an arrangement that was supported by his master. And then he gives as an example of this in Genesis, where in order to secure Rachel as his wife, Jacob pledged himself to Laban for seven years. So he worked for seven years in exchange for Laban providing for him a wife. And so in the light of this ruling, prohibiting the going out of the wife and the children, it protects a generous master who provides a partner for his slave. A slave who wished to ensure his own freedom and that of his wife and family could always postpone marriage until after his release in the seventh year. So there was always a possibility of freedom. And this arrangement here probably implied an additional debt to the slave that the slave would have to give a longer obligation to repay. And so implicit in these rulings is the idea that the ideal relationship between a slave and his master should be one of love. The master providing for the needs of the slave even to the extent of getting him a wife and the slave in turn acknowledging the security provided by the master in a society that had no state funded welfare provision for those in poverty. And so this is a repayment of a great gift, essentially. Then we see in verse five, the dignity of fealty, the dignity of fealty. That's a word we don't use very much anymore. Fealty. Webster defines it this way. The fidelity of a vassal or feudal tenant to his Lord. The fidelity or faithfulness. The obligation of such fidelity. In the use of law, published in 1629, Francis Bacon wrote this. Fealty is to take an oath upon a book that he will be a faithful tenant to the king. And in verse number five, we see a servant declaring this. I love my master. Can you imagine a scenario in which a slave loves his master? When we think of slavery, that doesn't enter our minds, does it? But that's the kind of relationship that the Bible envisions between master and slave. is one of love and one of kindness and respect and dignity. And so a slave may say, I love my master. I love my wife and my children. I do not want to go free. Even though it was within his right to have his freedom, he decides of his own accord to stay. If he desires to stay out of a sense of fealty, out of a sense of fidelity, out of faithfulness to his master, then there was a ceremony that they could partake in. They were to come before God perhaps to the central sanctuary or maybe to some other sacred altar, perhaps. And they were to, in the presence of God, they were to say, I commit myself to my master. 
I do not want to leave him. I pledge to be his servant for life. And then the second part of the ceremony is there would be a physical sign. He would take him and he would pierce his ear. And some commentators suggested that there would be some type of ring or earring that would be placed in his ear, symbolizing the fact that he had pledged himself of his own will, of his own choosing, pledged himself to serve his master for the rest of his life. There's dignity. We don't, we don't think this way. In our radical individualism in our Western society, we think of each person as their own king. We think of each person as their own boss, as their own Lord, as their own master. We don't like the idea of subordination. Our culture does not like the idea of subordination, of one person being over another. We, we are radically individual in our culture. And so this idea is so foreign to our, our current culture that they couldn't begin to understand it. But there is dignity in someone pledging their life in submission and service to another. There is dignity in that. Why? Because they're giving themselves, they're giving of themselves, it's self-sacrifice. And they're giving of themselves for the benefit of someone else And they're making a pledge of loyalty, of fidelity to that desire. There's there's dignity in that. And if you don't believe me that there's dignity in that, consider the fact that throughout much of the Bible, the way that God refers to his people is they are my servants. If you don't think Paul thinks of slavery as that of dignity, why is it then that Paul opens up every single one of his letters with, I am a bond slave of Christ? Is there dignity in someone giving their lives in service and in fidelity to another, to a master, to a Lord? Certainly there is. And in the Christian faith, there is great dignity in us as people giving ourselves in service in fidelity for life to our Savior who died for us. And with great honor, we can consider ourselves slaves of Christ. So this is a person who expresses great faithfulness and fidelity. And he, he solemnizes it with this ceremony, the dignity of fealty. Now, we come to verse 7 where we have a different situation, so a different primary ruling. This has to do with a female servant, if a man sells his daughter as a servant. Now, it says she is not to go free as male servants do. Now, when you first read that, you think, aha, the Bible likes men more than women, right? And that's what a critic would say. A critic would say, look at this. The Bible treats male slaves different than female slaves. The Bible likes men more than women. I could never worship and serve a God like that. But consider this in verse number 7. Verse 7, where it talks about a female servant, it is not precisely parallel to the situation of the male servant in verse 2. It is not precisely parallel, and I hope to show you why that is and why the different regulations for this as opposed to the male servant. 
It's not precisely parallel. And the reason we know that is because of the word that is used. The word that is used to describe this female servant, almost everywhere in Scripture that it is used, it is used in close context with marriage. Close context with marriage. Let me give you some examples. The Hebrew word is amah. And so the Hebrew word amah that refers to this female servant, it is not precisely parallel to the Hebrew word for, uh, for a male servant, which is evet. They're not parallel. There's a difference. For example, in Genesis, we see this Hebrew word amah used several times. And I'll give you some names and see if you could recognize the situations in which it is used. Hagar is in Amah. Bilhah and Zilpah are Amahs. Those are situations in which marriage is involved. In other words, there is a woman who has perhaps been in a situation of slavery or in that status, but then she is committed to someone either in betrothal or then followed through in marriage. And she becomes someone's wife. And so Hagar is regarded in scripture as Abraham's wife. And Ishmael, the son of Hagar, is not considered a slave of Abraham, is he? He's considered a son of Abraham. What about Bilhah and Zilpah? The, those were the two handmaids of Rachel and Leah, respectively. Jacob married them. And their children, their sons, are not regarded as slaves. Their sons are regarded as equal with the other tribes of Israel. So what's happening here is not as simple as here's a male slave being sold, here's a female slave being sold to do the exact same thing. It's different. In the case of the female, she is being given to someone as a slave, but with the idea that she will then become a wife of the master or perhaps his son. And you can see that as the, as the passage flows into the, the secondary rulings. And that's why she is not to go free as male servants do. Not because females are, in, are inferior to males, but because this has to do with a specific situation. With a woman who is given as pledged to be married to either the master or the master's son. And so verse 8 then, if she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. What does that mean? It means that if there was an agreement, say, between two families, and again, why would a family decide to do this to sell their daughter as an amah, as this servant? Destitution. Poverty. They don't have the means to provide for this arrangement. They need food. They need shelter. They need clothing. And this is an honorable way to arrange for the protection of and financial security of their daughter as well as financial security for them. And so they enter into this arrangement. We will give you our daughter to be a maidservant and then she will become either your wife or the wife of your son, whatever the arrangement was. 
But verse 8 says, if she does not please the master, maybe she's been there for a a period of time and and he changes his mind, either about himself or about his son, whatever. And he says, no, she's not going to become my wife or my son's wife. Then he has to, by Hebrew law, he has to allow for the family to redeem her. Basically, that is the payment of a price and she's no longer a slave anymore. She now comes back home and she's the daughter. He has no right to sell her to foreigners. So he can't break this arrangement. If she does not become a wife, then she is to be redeemed by the family. He cannot sell her to foreigners, which means she's not a normal slave here. She is a Hebrew. She's a Hebrew daughter and to be treated as such. He can't sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. What's that mean? He broke a pledge. Essentially the pledge of you're either going to become my wife or the wife of one of my sons, but now we're not not going to follow through on that. So now he cannot sell her to anyone else except to be redeemed by her family. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. So she's elevated in status then, isn't she? So if, if she is selected to become the wife of her son, then she is automatically elevated to the status of the rights and privileges of a daughter in the family. If he marries another woman, and there's different ways to interpret that. Some interpret it as a second wife. Some interpret it as changing mind and not marrying the original one and marrying a different one. It's hard to know for sure. But one thing is certain is that is he must still continue to provide for her food, her clothing, and her marital rights. Again, there's debate about what that Hebrew word means there that's translated marital rights. But the point is, is that once entered into this agreement and she is pledged, then he must take care of her and she is elevated to the status of a daughter or to the status or she must be redeemed by her family. And if he does not provide her with these things, then she is to go free without any payment of money, freedom. So what is this, verses 7 through 11, about a female slave? What does it teach? I think it teaches the dignity of faithful support. Or maybe another way of saying that is the dignity of fulfilled promises. And that is, in a society where, again, there was no welfare, no social security. There was no safety net in Israelite society, especially for an unmarried woman. Whether you were a widow or you were a girl unmarried, not yet married, whatever your situation was, as an unmarried woman, you were particularly vulnerable. And so what this is teaching is that a daughter of Israel is never, ever to be put in a situation where she is not taken care of. That's what this is teaching. So the the one who brings her in must fulfill his pledge to her, and she becomes a wife, either to himself or to one of his sons, if that was the arrangement. But if not, then she has to be redeemed. If she becomes a wife, then her she must continue to be provided for, for the rest of her life. 
And if she's not, she can go free and she can go back to her family. In other words, there should never be a situation where a daughter of Israel is not provided for, is not cared for. There's the dignity of faithful support or fulfilled promises. So to our ears, this passage seems odd. It seems out of place for us in 2018. And I grant that. Which makes interpreting and applying a passage like this challenging. It makes it difficult. But what I don't want us to do is I don't want us to fall into the trap and listen to the quick sound bites of the critics and the unbelievers and the atheists and say, see, look here, this verse says this and just takes it everything at face value without interpreting the context, without interpreting the historical situation. And the people that are throwing these things out there, they're not trained theologians. They're not trained exegetes of scripture. Would you want an average person on the street to interpret constitutional law for you? No. So don't, you can't just take a verse at face value and say, oh, look at Exodus 21 verse 7. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. See, look at that. The Bible's mistreatment of women. But that's totally out of context, isn't it? It's totally out of context, out of the context of the passage, out of the context of Exodus, and it's, out, it's lifted out of the historical and social and cultural context of ancient Near Eastern society. So when interpreted in the, in the right context, both historical, situational context, as well as within Exodus, we see that the purpose of these laws was to elevate, not to demean. It was to provide dignity and support for those who were destitute. It was to provide freedom for those who had to become enslaved for various reasons. So freedom, responsibility, support, faithfulness, That's what these laws are lifting up. And I think if this passage was teaching anything to us as Christians today, it is this, that even those in the most desperate and destitute of situations are to be afforded dignity. Even those in the most desperate and destitute of situations, they're to be afforded dignity. Christian love demands that we treat with respect and dignity all people, right? even those in the most lowly of ranks and positions. Even those in the most desperate and destitute situations are to be afforded dignity and respect and love. And this passage, in its right context, teaches that. It lifts up the downtrodden. It provides freedom for those who are enslaved. It provides support for those who have no other means of support. And so our God wants us to love one another and he wants us to show dignity to even the most, the lowest of society and the most destitute of society. Not to be looked down upon, but to be cared for and to be, and to given opportunities for recovery and to be shown dignity and respect. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father God, we acknowledge, Lord, that there are times when, in our pride, we can look down on people who maybe are going through difficult times in life, and maybe we come to wrong judgments about 
uh, why those people are in those situations. Sometimes we look down on them and we demean them and we don't show them the respect or the dignity that they deserve. Sometimes, Lord, we don't provide situations or opportunities for, for people to, to work and to bear responsibility for their own burdens and thus have that dignity for themselves. Lord, help us to not demean the idea of service to one another and especially of service to Christ. Lifelong, faithful service to our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you have redeemed us. You have brought us out of enslavement to sin and darkness. And now you have made us servants of another, a better master who shows love and grace and compassion to his servants. And Lord, may we emulate that character in our own lives in the way that we deal with others. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.